During World War II, the city of Coventry in England was a key industrial center that produced airplanes, weapons, and other vital supplies for England's war effort. And on one night in November, November 14, 1940, the city came under a heavy assault from the German Air Force and what became known as the Coventry Blitz. Among all the buildings destroyed or damaged during that night, during the attack, was this medieval Coventry Cathedral, as it was known, and the cathedral was hit by several flammable bombs that just engulfed the building and destroyed it completely. And you can still see the site today. They've rebuilt the cathedral, but they've left some of the walls that, that existed, you know, like two walls from around it. They, they did all that so that they could be reminded of all that happened there. Uh, they left some of the ruined structure as an example of the awfulness of war, but Days after the carnage, the pastor of that place gathered some people uh, from his midst, and he preached to them. But before he preached, keeping, just keep going, but before he preached, he spoke briefly about the building. He said, through the darkest of times, hope can still shine through. You can imagine being there as the stained glass windows are now shattered completely. Through the darkest of times, hope can still shine through, but remember, The most dangerous thing that can still happen to our church is not what can attack us from the outside, but what can destroy us from the inside. The book of 1 Timothy, for us, is in many ways a harsh, anxious shot across the bow about a church that is desperately needing help in such a way that the Apostle Paul himself taps one of his most valuable lieutenant to pastor them back to purity and fidelity. The church of Jesus Christ in this city and the church of Jesus Christ at large, you think of us today, is one thing that Jesus cares most about within His creation. It's a beautiful refuge. It serves as an explanation of the gospel. It, It signals to the world an outpost of heaven. And sometimes a church's beauty or a church's strength or a church's purity can come under assault from within. Like a little water leak going unnoticed can ruin an entire home, or a beam above us in the living room warping enough to have the ceiling crash down. This book, this letter to a person, to a church, and even to us today is a monument of the importance of shepherding of the importance of worshiping, of the importance of fellowshipping. And with it, I pray that we'll be led to see from the Word, from God, what true beauty looks like in the church. Living a life of order, under instruction, and dependence on the Spirit's guidance. So it's commonly known as the first of three letters that are referred to as the Pauline epistles or the Pauline letters. These are often, you might study ecclesiology or or what is the church, and these seem to be the, the pinnacle of what you might look at. And it's written, though, to a person. It's written to Timothy. It's given a charge to Timothy, but it's meant clearly for churches. And they're not simply meant for the original individual or the original churches to whom they're addressed. It, it is even meant for us today. Uh, because Paul, as the apostle, tells us all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for reproof and correction and training and righteousness. And so Paul is not simply sharing his opinions in these letters of, of how they can have a healthy church in around 60 AD, but he is also giving us divine instruction 
for our church's life and happiness today. What is the church supposed to be like? We all have opinions. Some of the opinions are right. You may have some things that you would like Crosspoint to be different than it, than it currently is or it, currently, or it previously was or it might will be someday. You may be here at Crosspoint because you didn't like another church. You know, we're not talking, though, about matters of taste or opinion. It's amazing the, the different themes that will seep up in this letter months ahead as, we, as I preach through this. That the amazing things that you'll just go, what? Why did Paul find it pertinent to write this church about this issue, which seems to be not a big deal? Or, of course, Paul wrote to this church about this thing, which is arguably a very big deal. But it's going to be divine inspiration for us. We're talking about matters of of the principles of God's Word, how we worship, how we love, how we care, how we hope. And so this letter should and will cause some questions about what church should be like. Uh, does the Bible say anything about how the church should be? It certainly does, and this is one of those cases where it is. All throughout the Bible, God is telling us things, but especially here in these, in these words from this letter. So the context of the book is God directing His Word through Paul to pastors and these local congregations who had been in existence for about 30 years after the resurrection. So this is like their 30th anniversary letter. And here God gives us timely principles, which are just as applicable for us today for how the church should and must be. Now, Paul's words to his brother, Pastor Timothy, give us a description and a prescription of the pattern of the life of the local church. Sorry, this is going to be like a long introduction, and I have four points. But so if you're like, are we ever going to get to it? We will. I have one more page in my intro, and then we'll be fine. They, they They give us a description of what it would be like to have and to hold this local congregation in the days of Paul. So if you've ever wondered what it's like to be preached to by Paul or to be uh, gleaming into his pastor school or even to see what it would be like to be in a congregation that was sent out by missionary efforts of the apostle, you'll get it in this. Paul is not just tickling our historical interest. He's not just giving us interesting information. He's actually instructing you and me about how the church is to be. Now, an example of this, if you've got a Bible, turn to the left to the book of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It may just be one page for some of you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, this is another letter written by Paul, though not bundled up into the pastoral epistles, but another letter. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says this to the, to the Christians at Thessalonica. And if anyone does not obey our word in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with them so that he'll be put to shame. Now, every preacher wishes they could write a letter like that, like, hey, listen to me or get out. But this is is not from a pastor. This is from an apostle. This is from, you could almost think of it as God's word to them through this man. Uh, Paul can say things like this because he's an apostle, that Jesus called him to this office, Jesus invested in Paul with his authority, and Jesus told Paul how he wanted his church to be. So Paul gets to say, now take special note of what I've written to you, and if anyone doesn't like it or disagrees with it, that's fine, just remove them from your church. Now, no, he's not being mean here, he's making it clear that the church belongs to God under God's authority, and therefore the church is going to be done the way that God wants the church to be done, done, not according to man's methods or man's message. All right, now turn with me to the first book of Thessalonians, one book to your left, 
the first book of Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Here, so you have a negative example. Then you have a positive example. Paul here is applauding the Christians in Thessalonica for a particular thing. First Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. It says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the firstfruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel, that you may obtain it to the glory of our Lord Jesus. I read the wrong passage, didn't I? First Thessalonians, just as I said, don't do as I do, do as I say. That's not good advice either. All right, First Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 and 14. And for this reason, we thank God without ceasing. And when you received the word of God, which you had heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. For brothers, become imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also suffered the same things at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. All right, turn back to 1 Timothy. We'll plant there today. In other words, in this second reading, uh, Paul is saying, we thank God that when you heard the message, you recognized that it was not the opinion of the messenger, but rather it was God's Word, and you received it that way. Now, now Paul in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus is not writing for us. So, all that under the context of what Paul is saying here is not good advice for the church of Christ, but what Paul is saying here is the very words of Christ for the church of Christ to obey. And if you don't obey it, Paul is saying, get out. And if you do obey it, then Paul is saying, praise God for your reception of the Word. Now, Paul here isn't writing the bestseller or helpful hints on a healthy church. This is not the wisdom cold from years of pastoring to give you tips on how to be better Christians in a local church. No, this is God's Word for how it's supposed to be in the local church, and we all need to obey it. Now, I think there are three ways, I hope this is helpful, I think there are three ways to view how, how a church is comprised, the, the organization of the organism of the church. Three ways to view it. The first one I'll say is above the line. And I'll say one below the line, and then I'll say right on the line. So there's one way to view it above the line. This is where people or a church would say the gospel is fine. The gospel is good. We, we believe the gospel. We preach the gospel. We want to promote the gospel. But the methods aren't working anymore. Whatever methods were there, they're not working anymore. And the, the message is great, but the methods need to be updated. And so you see churches react to this in movements such as the seeker-sensitive movement or even the church council movement of 100, 125 years ago, or even kind of the new one, it's the experience movement where church is all about how I had an experience there for like 60 minutes that day. That, that becomes the organization of the church. It's above the line. So they, they remove, or they want to change the method. They like the message. Then another one is below the line. The gospel, they would say, was written 2,000 years ago, or the scripture is written 2,000 years ago, and it's not just appealing to modern men and women today. It needs to be updated. It needs to be rethought. The message of the gospel needs to be repackaged or reformulated. We need, to, we need to take away certain parts that are offensive to the modern mind, and we need to bring it up to date. So they, they might even keep the same method, you know, a certain kind of a liturgy or something, but they just preach a different gospel by updating the gospel. We see this in progressive or liberal theological movements or the egalitarian movement of 60, 70 years ago. 
uh, other things where they might look the same in how they practice. You walk into that church and you're like, that feels like my childhood church. But then you listen to a sermon and it's like, they're not talking about what the scriptures are promoting. And then you have another movement, uh, which is hopefully, I'm going to boldly say, in line with scripture, that God's message and method always accomplishes what God intends. God's message that He's given us, God's method for how we understand and live in light of His message, always, those two together, will accomplish what He intends. Where the biblical view of the church says that the crucial task of the church is not to update the gospel or to find new methods that work, but to always be striving to be faithful and believing and living out both God's message and method. So it's actually cool to do the same old things, the same old way, basking in the glory of God. Now, one major thing that we'll see, uh, the intro was almost over. One major thing we'll see from 1 Timothy is the Apostle Paul will call us to both God's message and God's method. The Bible says that the gospel works and that God has given us both the method and message to build His church. So it'll be, it'll be fun to evaluate constantly. There's a mood here in these verses, though. Oftentimes, the book of 1 Timothy is kind of used in patches where, you know, you might say, okay, how are our elders organized and use that patch? Or how, are, how do we care for widows and use that patch? Or you might see it as like something that you go back to, pull a resource off the shelf. Are we doing things like we ought to do? But remember, this letter was written as one letter, and there's a mood and tone in this letter that, that is kind of surprising. There is danger within the church, and there is danger outside of the church, And what God is saying through this word is you can pursue righteousness through that danger by acting a certain way or pursuing a certain thing. So you'll see words here like they're swerving one way or another. It's not good to swerve on the road. That means you're going to fall off a cliff. And he's saying, hey, church, you are swerving here. Come back. Or there are false teachers attacking you like a wolf would devour a sheep. So, So this is not like a boring you know, diatribe that I'm going to go on for six months of like, this is just Asher's class and what the church looks like. No, it is, it is way more pressurized than that. He is signaling an alarm to a particular church. Paul writes to Timothy saying, the church in all of its beauty in reflection of God's glory is worth fighting for. All right, now, a couple of things I want you to see from just these couple of verses. Uh, the first two verses of the book of Timothy. I think Paul is signaling an alarm here, saying a church is worth fighting for. And the first way he shows us that it's worth fighting for is because a church worth fighting for is comprised by God's commandments. So look at verse 1. First thing I want you to see is that Paul draws our attention to a God-appointed ministry of the church, a God-appointed ministry. Timothy must understand that this was God who appointed Paul. So Paul will say, hey, I'm an apostle here, listen up. Timothy would have known that. He knew who Paul was and what Paul's rank was, if you want to call it that. He must understand this, though, because it is God who has appointed Timothy to the task of ministry. It's not the church who appointed Paul to the task of ministry, nor the church who appointed Timothy to the task of ministry. Ultimately, it is God who appoints people to ministry. Now, although in this congregation, so I'm thinking of us here, every elder, every deacon, and even myself as an elder, is voted upon by the congregation, you must affirm God's calling to us to serve. But it is not ultimately the church who calls men out into ministry. God calls. 
God is the one who appoints to ministry. We see this in the Old Testament. God is the one who appointed these prophets. God is the one who appointed these kings. God is the one who appointed these people. And then in the New Testament, we see God is the one who appointed these apostles. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, it says, look at, in the book with your eyes, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus. Paul is stressing that the ministry of the Christian church is according to the commandment of God. Now, this is a interestingly strange way for Paul to open his letter because he knows Timothy, he loves Timothy, but it seems really rigid to open this up. I mean, you wouldn't write a love letter to your spouse and say, dear spouse, I am your spouse, and then drive into the relationship part of it. You're going to see that in the next verse, though, he, he starts talking emotively. He has a very close relationship with Timothy. They're dear, dear friends. They've worked together in the past. They've been through thick and thin. And you would think this is a rigid and formal way to open a letter to a dear friend, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the man, commandment of God. And you might even be thinking about, why wouldn't he say, dear Timothy, how's it going? How are you? How's your fam? But remember that Paul tells us elsewhere that Timothy wasn't to be pushed around by naysayers or even false teachers. So he's kind of getting in front of the argument where Timothy is going to receive pushback from people. And he's saying, Timothy, this is coming to you from the words of the Lord. And that's why he starts out so rigidly. Paul is drawing attention to the fact that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God. So Paul is not an apostle because he knew all the right people. He was not made an apostle because he was super ambitious. He was not an apostle because he was smarter than anyone else. Paul is an apostle because one day he was on the way to Damascus to kill Christians, and Jesus met him there and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And then he said, Paul, I'm going to show you how much you will suffer for my sake. Paul was called to gospel ministry by Jesus, legitimately by Jesus. And Paul is drawing attention to the fact that in the church, God is the one who appoints. God is the one who declares. God is the one, we'll see later, is the ultimately the one who guides. And I think for us it's helpful to think through our church operating and functioning like God has called it to a function. Has God called us to do this? Has God called us to operate in this way? Has God called this to pursue something unique and special? We often think about how churches operate and functioning by the church I'll probably say it a hundred times in the next six months. Just remember, it's not a building. It's a people. You know, here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open it up. Here's all the people. That, don't think about the steeple. Don't think about the buildings. Only think about the people are like, you teach your kids that and then correct them right immediately. All right. So w- when we think about the church, we often think about its operation functioning like God has called it to function based on mm, best practices by the way of business growth ideas. Or we think about it operating like God has appointed us to operate like other quote-unquote successful churches. They've grown to 5,000 people. Let's emulate everything they do. They grew to 30 people. Let's emulate everything they do. Or maybe it's through philosophy. You know, have, have the times changed? We need to do church different because of how the time has changed. Or even through personality tests. We went on a tour of a large church in Oklahoma City maybe seven years ago. And, and all of their pastoral offices, you know, so they had offices but all of their pastor offices had, had tags on the front where you have your name and then your Myers-Briggs uh, rank or whatever that is, and then that you were the pastor of whatever. And I thought, how, how straight, like in bold letters, this test, which I'd taken and I'd like, and you know, then I'd take it again when I don't like it, but it was, their organization was based on something that is from man, not from God. 
It's not ultimately the local church who decides how it's going to be governed or organized. It's ultimately on God's divine call, God's divine appointment, God's supply of gospel grace and ministry. Now, all ministry in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is done according to that same appointment and directive. Practically, this is why we pray to God first, or why we ought to pray to God first, for the things that are to be done amongst us. You should pray to God. So when, you, when you're thinking of organization of the church, I don't just want you to think of the, the offices, you know, pastor, deacon, elder, deacon, that kind of thing. I also want you to think of your relationship to other people. What is it like for you to live in the midst of Crosspoint? It might mean you meeting up with someone and reading through the Bible together. That's ministry in that local church. It might mean you going to someone and saying, hey, the Lord has impressed something on my heart. I want to pray for you today. Can I pray for you? And so like any of those uh, outworkings of gospel ministry, it's why we pray to God. God, I feel like this person has been pressed on my heart to serve and to love. Is that true? Lead me in the way that I should go. And the success of any ministry and success of any church depends upon that realization that, that we need God to, in many ways, come down and bless us and guide us. It's God's church, and He appoints its leaders and its method. The, the minute we begin to appoint those who are not chosen of God, we get into a serious amount of trouble, which he's telling Timothy to look out for, for these false teachers. Now, a second thing that I think Paul outlines for us, that a church worth fighting for is a church that is dependent on a clear view of God. A church worth fighting for is dependent on not only God's command, but also a, that church's clear view of who God is. So look at verses 1 and 2. You see a God-focused ministry. Paul is exceedingly focused on the one who has called him into service, who he is, who God is, what he's like. The ministry of the church, in fact, depends on a clear understanding of who God is. And Paul stresses four things here about God. God is Savior. Jesus is the Messiah, our hope. God is Father. And fourth, Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord. He tells us four things about God who has called him into the service. The first thing, God is Savior. You, you see, you don't, you don't just need to know stuff or do stuff in order to serve or live in the church, but you need to realize you need to be forgiven. People need to be forgiven. Oftentimes, people think in God's grace, here's a young man who wants to pursue ministry of some kind, so you, you ship him off to seminary, which I, I think you ought to do, and I, I'm thankful for people prodding me to do this, but Seminary is not, it's not just like a how-to three-year workshop, uh, at least it shouldn't be, on how, what the church could be or must act like. I mean, the first classes you take are on the doctrine of God, and it takes forever, and you read a billion books, and they all point you hopefully back to the Word, because if you don't know God, then who cares about the function of a church? We don't just need a great grandfather in the sky. We need a God who will forgive us of our sins. And so the very, from the very first, Paul is aware that he's been called to serve God's people by a God who saves, a God who is a Savior. And I want to tell us right now that if we're in a church or at a camp or a part of a ministry where you don't hear about God being the Savior and you don't hear that God saves us from our sins, you don't hear about a God who saves people at the cost of his own son, then the best thing you can do is to get out of that church quick, find another ministry to go to, leave that camp, find one that will talk about it, because God is talking about the very heartbeat of ministry here. He's called by God, the one who saves. 
But not only that, he's called by Christ, who is our hope. And it's a glorious phrase, our hope. Two thoughts immediately come to mind in looking through this, our hope. One, isn't it interesting contrast that Paul gives us? He's called according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and then secondly, and Jesus Christ, our hope. It's fascinating that he groups together God, who we all see as divine, but then our Savior, Christ Jesus, who he's implicitly saying here, Jesus is God. I mean, how many of us have heard the argument that the New Testament doesn't categorize Jesus as God, but rather Jesus just as the Messiah? You know, we've seen movies about that, Jesus Christ Superstar. We've seen religious uh, movements like that. You think, of, you think of the Mormon church. He's not, he's not divine like God the Father is, but all over the place in the New Testament, it talks about Jesus as divine. Jesus is God, not just one of God's, but is God himself. We see him as that. He's God in the New Testament. He's God in the Old Testament. And in those passages, if the, even if those passages were not there in the New Testament, this passage alone indicates the divinity of Jesus. Think about it. Friends, Paul is saying to Timothy, grace and mercy and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Saying that, he's indicating Jesus to be of the same essence, of the same substance, equal in power and glory with God. It's a testimony to his divinity. But notice, secondly, within this phrase, our hope. It's the second thing I want you to see here. You know that the New Testament speaks about the blessed hope. Blessed hope is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it says in 1 Corinthians 15, if our hope is in this life only, we are miserable. The great thing about that, the great thing that Christians look forward to is the coming of the Savior Christ Jesus and the culmination of his new kingdom. And so our hope is firmly placed on him in hope, on his person in hope, on his divinity, on his incarnation, on his life, on his ministry, on his miracles, on his death, on his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his rule and reign in hope that he will come again. And it's just in those phrases where, where Paul is like, Timothy, go get him, man. Think about what you've been given. And then he goes on to speak about God who is the Father. Can't just call God Father unless you know His Son. It is the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who ushers us into the presence of a heavenly Father. He is no longer the one who ought to be justly judging us for our sins. He is now our heavenly Father who welcomes us into His family. And Paul knows that it's vital that we understand that if we're going to minister to one another in the church. If we have a different God, then we have no reason to be around each other. You've heard me say it before, but it is amazing. A group this size, hundreds of people, you and I literally have nothing in common. Even those of you who like to hang around each other because you have something in common, you do not have anything in common. You are so unique, which is the positive way to view at it, but also you are so in need of God's particular grace in your life that welcomes you into the family to where you can call out to Him as the Father and see Him as the Lord of not only your life, but the Lord of His church. It is the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who ushers you into as fully God, fully man, to where you can call out to Him as the Father. The Almighty One, the Maker of heaven and earth, our Father, if we have embraced Jesus Christ in the gospel. Friend, you can't know that God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ unless you know Jesus Christ who allows you to know the Father. If you have turned from your own attempts to justify yourself, from your own attempts to deny your sin, from your own attempts to make up for your sin, from your own attempts to be good, from your own 
attempt to be accepted by God, you've got to, at some point, come to a conclusion that you can't, and you need the Savior to save you, to be your only hope in Christ. And if you trust in Him, you believe in Him, if you believe what the Bible says about Him, and if you trust in what the Bible says about Him, you put all of your hope in that, you put all of your eggs in that basket, when you have done that, then suddenly you realize that God, the just judge, pouring out wrath against sin, ruling and reigning in heaven and earth, is actually now your Father. And you can call out to Him. And so it's so important, just the, the clarity of what the gospel is shapes everything else of what the church will be. The ministry of the Christian church depends upon a clear apprehension of who God is, our Savior, our hope, our Father, and then he also says our Lord, meaning the ruler and reigning over everything. Paul Miller, who has written a ton of great books about prayer, I haven't read them all, but I've read like five, and so I'd recommend all those five to you. One of the things that Paul Miller says that we do church best when we don't look at church, but when we gaze at Christ. Everything else will flow from there. Now, the third thing is that uh, I think Paul brings to our attention a church worth fighting for is one that is propelled by the gospel, one that is propelled or fueled by the gospel. Look at verse 2. We've seen another thing by the way of example in Paul's words. We see Paul's example of encouragement. Notice his encouraging words to Timothy. Again, very formally, Paul, an apostle, according to the commandment of God. Then it becomes very tender in Paul, though not being willfully didactic in this. He's not consciously saying, okay, now I'll go on to something else to talk to Timothy. But seeing that this is God's word, therefore, is to teach us 2,000 years later, but also Timothy at that point, and also these churches who Timothy will impact, he is truly, genuinely giving a greeting now to Timothy with an encouragement that is profound to Timothy, my true child in the faith, my genuine child in the faith. I think this is exceptionally helpful where the ministry of the Christian church is to be one of spiritual encouragement. Can you imagine what it will be like what it would have been like to have heard Paul, <laughs> that he considers you to be one of his children in the faith? Can you imagine what an encouragement it is to hear from your Savior through his words or even in, from the Savior and the Savior's words in John chapter 17, that it is his prayer that the Father would not love you less than he loves his Son? What, what an encouraging thing. Now, friends, we have a sure foundation by which we can encourage one another in the faith. Again, it's not our commonality between each other. It's not experiences that we've gone through. It's not the things that we hope we can go through. You know, you look around, and how can we encourage one another? Well, on the foundation alone of the gospel, it is the reminder of what God in Christ has done for us and the forward thinking of what He will do, well, the present thinking of what He is currently doing in us and the forward thinking of what He promises to do for us in much more ways that we can then go and encourage one another. We often think about encouragement as, uh, we often think about, I'm going rogue here, this may not be good. We often think about encouragement as affirmation of anything that people are doing. How was your Saturday? Oh, I mowed the yard. Oh man, that's great, man. You mow, you mow a great yard. Good for you. I just encourage that guy. And instead, encouragement scripturally is reminding ourselves continually of the gospel's previous work, current action, and future hope. What encouragement in times of despair when you could shake someone's by the shoulders and say, remember the Lord's love for you. Oh, the clouds come off, don't they? Or to go to someone who is in sin 
unrepentant sin, if they're a Christian believer, saying, remember, remember who Christ is, what He has done for you, the value of that. He doesn't want you to carry on like you've been carrying on. It's the gospel that serves as the foundation for all encouragement in the church. And this is, this is Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy, my son in the faith. What it would be like to have Paul as a spiritual father. Well, friends, remember the equal playing field that who we are in Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female. We could go to someone and say, hey, brother, sister. There's a movement about 300 years ago, I think, in the, in the Baptistic world. So you think of East Europe, you know, Lutherans over here, Zwingli and stuff over here, this Anabaptist and Baptistic movement. One of the things they started doing is they wanted, to, they wanted to lower the bar of authoritative titles. So I get a little awkward when people call me Pastor Asher, you know, and my dad, like, doesn't he have a title? So just Asher's fine, or most high reverend, if you really feel like it, you really want to encourage me, but, <laughs> but in, in one of the, <laughs> um, no, don't do it. Uh, one of the, one of the, one of the things that this movement did about 300, 400 years ago is they, they started affirming one another by saying brother or sister or family. And then they would distinguish those who were outside of the church by saying friend. So they're not going to be like evildoer, wicked one, unconverted soul. They would just say, friend, hear what the gospel says even to you in your sin. God is calling you to himself. And then they would say, brother, sister, remember what God has done for you in Christ. This remarkable encouragement. This is propelling of gospel ministry, of gospel encouragement. A fourth thing, a church worth fighting for finally is resourced by God in Christ. A church worth fighting for is resourced by God in Christ. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. To Timothy, my genuine child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's here's what I want you to understand. Paul points Timothy to the resources of Christian ministry. It's like he's taking them down from the the bookshelf of all of his protégés, takes them down, encourages him in the faith, gives him the backpack full of all the things we can do in the Christian life. And what are those things? Grace, mercy, and peace. How does Paul encourage Timothy? How does he prepare him for war? By pointing him to the attributes of God. He is the Savior. He is our hope. He is our Father. He is our Lord. But also pointing to the provisions and these gifts of God. He gives us grace and mercy and peace. My friends, all of us brothers and sisters, think about this. The Christian church is and must be utterly dependent upon the resources granted to us from the Father in Christ Jesus. We do not have the power to do what God has called us to do outside of what He has empowered us to do. And that power is grace, mercy, and peace. Consider the task that God has given to us. God has said, now here's all I want you to do. I want you to raise the dead. I want you to heal all the wounded in the church. And that really boils down to what God is asking us to do in our church today. I want want us to revive our seemingly sad, torrentiously beaten down souls, raise us 
and remind us of the good news. We're being asked to take part in the raising of this, of the spiritual dead. I don't know if that, I don't know if you ever think about the children's ministry that happens. So if you don't know, 9 to 10 a.m., women, you know, kids' Sunday school classes, or, or the Awana ministry on Wednesday nights, that, that opportunity for hopefully mature men and women in Christ to seek out to raise the dead. It'll change your prayer, won't it? Going into a women's or men's Bible study, what's happening in those times? What's happening in this time? It, it is cosmic war. Friend, have you ever thrown a life preserver to a dead person? They will not grab on. Yet God here says, raise the dead with grace, mercy, and peace. That's what we have to do. And I know that we will say, well, we can't do that. I don't know things well enough, or you know, we only want these people or that people. We don't want those people to talk to other people. Only God can do these important things. But we are pressed back on the resources that only God can give, His grace to us, His mercy to us, His peace to us, where we're called to be faithful in the work of bringing the grace, mercy, and peace of God to other people in our midst. And this is, this is what we see, a God-appointed ministry, a God-conscious, aware of who He is ministry, a ministry of encouragement by the gospel, and a ministry that is resourced by God's good gifts to us. All this and just the greeting that Paul has for Timothy, that church, and for us today. And in the next several God-willing months, we'll see the, the ounces of things we can glean from and learn from and deploy as righteously obeying all that His Word says about Him. Friends, He is writing, let me just sum this up hopefully with this, He is writing to this brother and to us, not only because He has once loved us, but He views our operation within this gathering of people to have eternal, cosmic, life-altering transformation, and it is worth every ounce of our joy in our life. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank You that You have taught us great things about Yourself, about how You've gifted us. We ask that You would empower us day by day, week by week, life by life, to take hold of and trust and believe that you are doing a good work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.